Amen. Good to see you this morning. Good to have you back uh, for the fall. We're just looking forward to what the Lord has and, and what he has for each of us and what he's calling us to. And I believe in these times in which we live that can sometimes be dark and confusing. Jesus has an answer. He is the answer. And the more real he becomes to us, the more real he'll be to our culture. And so we're looking forward to the Lord doing a deep work in us and doing some, some powerful things to his people that he already is, but uh, just to continue doing that. I want to ask you this morning to begin my message. I just have an abbreviated word that really just want to address a topic that's going to be a bit of an umbrella moving into the fall. So I'll just introduce it this morning. It won't be as long perhaps as normal, but I trust it'll still be an encouragement to you. But I want to ask you to help me finish these sentences. Number one, there's nothing new under the sun, right? How about this one? The more things change, the more they Remain the same, right? Stay the same. I mean, if you're as old as me, I'm not that old. You're 62 pretty soon. But for those of us who've been around the block a couple times, there really isn't a whole lot new under the sun, right? There's a lot of things we see. They, they're brand new to some folks. But for us, hey, we've seen that, been there before. Things like mom jeans. Anybody ever see mom jeans? There was a time when those were in style. Because back in that day, we didn't know any better. But... Uh, some people claim they're still in style. You keep believing that, but we have things like mom jeans. We also have uh, dad shoes. You ever seen dad shoes? Uh, I describe those as clunky sneakers. Uh, my heart goes out to guys who wear those. Usually it's just dads who can't afford good sneakers because they've already bought the brand names for their kids, and so they wear those. I don't have a picture, but how about Crocs? I understand Crocs are coming back, right? Never knew they went out of style, I guess, but uh, at least Crocs with socks. But, you know, if you wear Crocs, I guess it's a whole new thing because some star, some singer, whatever, uh, started to wear those. But the reality is the more things change, the more things remain the same. That's true of our culture. That's true of uh, a lot of our fashion. But it's also true, I believe, in matters of faith. If I were to describe to you, for example, a time when, when culture was divided, a time when you look around and people seem to be so discouraged by what's happening in the world, a time when there seemed to be so many agendas, so many narratives, so many ideologies that even a lot of people who once walked with Christ are kind of getting disillusioned or weary or discouraged and seem to be walking away from the faith. If I told you about those kind of things, what time of history do you think I'd be talking about? Probably today, right? Well, we see some of that today, but this isn't the first time we've seen that. We saw this back in the 60s. Now, I don't mean the 1960s, even though we saw it back then as well. I'm talking about back in the 60s AD, like 30 years after Jesus lived. Life in those days, I believe, was the same kind of cultural context that we see in our day today. And there's a book in the Bible called Jude. It's only one chapter. It's the second last book in the New Testament, just before Revelation. And Jude actually addresses some of these things. Now, I think probably most of us here this morning with some of the stuff we've seen going on in our world, and we're more aware because of media and, and uh, just the, the way the news works and so on, <clears throat> but a lot of us believe probably today that we live in unprecedented times. Have you heard that expression? We are living in unprecedented times. But you know what? My parents believed they were living in unprecedented times back then. My grandparents, right, the war generation, they believed they were living in unprecedented times. But the truth is, God's people have always been there. We've always been through times like that down through history, as well as our culture, of course. And Jude lived in a similar context as our day, when a lot of crazy things were going on. And I want to just share with you a couple things that Jude said that serve as the, the backdrop, the foundation for some, some things we want to share in the weeks to come. Now, as I mentioned, Jude is just one book. 
And so he says in verse 1 and 2, will you read it with me? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now keep in mind with all that's going on, Jude is not writing to the culture. He's not putting an article in the newspaper, right? He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to followers of Jesus Christ. He's speaking to those who are called by God, who are loved by God, who are kept by God. Now, you may not be aware of this, a little fun fact, but Jude's name actually is Judas. Did you know that? His real name is actually Judas. There are actually several Judases in the New Testament. I believe there are eight altogether. Because it was a very popular name back then. One of the reasons was because of the tribe of Judah. And so the name Judas comes from that. But also there was a very famous leader about 150 years before Christ. His name was Judas Maccabeus or Maccabee. He was a man who actually led a revolt against the Romans when the Romans were trying to impose this kind of Hellenistic, pluralistic religion upon the Jews and to rob them of their Jewish faith. This man named Judas Maccabeus rose up and led a revolt. So it was a very, very common name back in that day. But what's interesting about this particular Judas who, read this one, who wrote this one chapter is that he was actually a half-brother of Jesus. Now, on one occasion when Jesus was returning to his hometown in ministry, and the Bible records the people responding this way, Matthew 13. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Now, for those who may not be familiar or maybe wondering why he's a half-brother, the reason is, is because unlike his other siblings, whose father was Joseph and mother was Mary, Jesus was different in that his mother was Mary, but his father was who? The Holy Spirit, right? God. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit without the help of a human father. And so Joseph raised Jesus, but he was Jesus' Uh, stepfather, or well, would you say stepfather? Uh, well, he's father. No, sorry, that's wrong. It's his father, but what I meant to say was he was the half-brother to his siblings. Okay, we got that right. Don't want to confuse you too much here. But that's basically how it works. So Judas is the brother of James, the full brother of James, same father and mother, but he's the half-brother of Jesus. But what stands out to me when you read about Judas is that he doesn't use that term, half-brother of Jesus, to identify himself. He actually describes himself as this way. He says, I am a brother of James, and I am a servant of Jesus Christ. What does he do? Jude, Judas, identifies with the least famous brother. Now, if any of us had a famous sibling, what would we do, right? If we knew somebody famous, right, we would drop their name all the time. Right? I had the same conversation with Tom Brady just last week. We we're chatting on the phone. I said, Tom, I said, but in any case, um, some of you don't know who Tom Brady is, football player. And I'm only kidding, obviously. Right? But we would do that. But Jane, uh, Judas doesn't do that. And I find that really interesting. Why does he not do that? Why is this important? I believe it's because for Judas, his identity was not just in the physical relationship of being the half brother of Jesus, his identity was in being a servant of Jesus Christ. His identity was someone whose life had been changed because of Jesus. And this is what makes Judas so much more different from the more notorious Judas that we know who actually walked away from Jesus. For example, in the last Passover meal with his disciples, 
Matthew records Jesus, uh, records this happening in Matthew 26. He says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Will you read this last line? They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Right? You don't mean me, Lord. But then we go three verses later. Read this with me. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. You see the difference? You see, a rabbi is a teacher. A rabbi is someone who has maybe some good information to impart to you. And as I read that, I thought, Lord, you know, the same thing is true of me, isn't it? The same thing is true of all of us. Jesus is either your Lord. He is either the one who has conquered your heart. He is either the one who speaks into your life and you say, yes, Lord, and your heart is changed. You're, you, you submit yourself to him out of love and faith and trust. He's either Lord or he's just a rabbi to you. He's just a teacher. He's just someone who has some interesting ideas. You might even agree with what he says, but for you, obedience is optional. That means he's not Lord of your life. That means there's not really going to come change in your life. You're always going to be stuck at a certain place in what you might call your Christian life, but you're never going to really experience, as we sang earlier this morning, you're not going to experience how the joy of the Lord is your strength. You're not going to experience the reality of what it means for Jesus Christ to conquer your heart, for you to be so changed that he's not just Jesus. He's not just a good teacher. And, and even if we say, Lord, by our actions, like Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? You see, you can call me Lord. That word can flow to your mouth easily, but I know to me, to you, I'm just your rabbi. I'm just a teacher who shares truth with you, but you consider the things that I share with you as being optional. Both Judases hung around the same Jesus. They saw the same miracles, they heard the same teaching. They might even have participated in some of the same ministries, but there's two different responses. Why the different response? I believe it's because Jude had his heart melted by Jesus, if I could use that phrase. He became a different person, even to the point, and friends, this is more profound than we realize, even more so to the point, rather, that he no longer referred to Jesus as his half-brother. Now, what's significant about that, you may recall in the Gospels that when first Jesus went into ministry or public ministry, what was the response of his family? They thought he was crazy. Even though he was a, you know, a great child, and I'm sure by all description, a perfect son, a perfect brother, a perfect child, like he's kind, it's kind of gotten to his head. Like he's gone too far to say he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. His family didn't even believe who he said he was. So something had happened as Judas was walking with Jesus over those three years because he knew this Jesus. And as he heard him speak and saw these new things happening through his life and all was going around him, he began to realize, like Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are God of very God. That's who you are. And in that acknowledgement, he surrendered to his lordship. Can you imagine saying whatever your sibling's name is, you know, my name is John and I am a servant. Can I imagine me saying, my brother's name is Robert. My name is Paul. I'm a servant of Robert, right? Even though he was the older brother, you know, I wouldn't say that because I know who he is. Something radical, profound happened in Judas's heart 
as he walked with Jesus that he was now a servant of Jesus Christ. But then we take Judas, the one who would betray him, and it seems like his heart became progressively hardened by being around Jesus, but never letting his heart be changed. Never coming to that place, again, when push comes to shove and say, I may not want to change here, but the Lord speaking truth in my heart, and I need to submit to him if he's really Lord. And then that truth becomes released in my life and begins to change me, begins to transform me. There's an old saying that the sun shines, the same sun, rather, that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And I want to encourage his friends to understand that you can be around Jesus, but Jesus will either melt your heart or your heart will become hardened by continually saying no. Jesus, you can come this close, but no closer. Jesus, you can have this part of my life, but you ain't touching this part. And the Lord understands there's seasons and times and things that he does in our lives. But when he comes to us, he comes to us because he knows now's the time. He doesn't come to tease us, to taunt us. He doesn't come to make us feel bad. He comes and he says, let's deal with this now. You're ready to deal with this. And there needs to be a faith that rises up with us and says, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to change. But because you're my Lord, I say, come in. Lord, work on me. Lord, you have a submitted heart before you this morning. And Jude goes on to write these words in verse 3. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, in other words, that's what I intended when I first sat down to write you. I was going to talk about the goodness of the salvation all God's done for us. He says, But I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. You say that last part with me? Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The word contend is interesting. For those who may not be aware, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Greek language. The Greek word that is used here for contend is the same word from which we get our English word to agonize. So if we were to contend, if we were to agonize, what are we to agonize for? Any guess? The faith. The faith. Now, the faith is more than a belief system. What faith is, according to the scriptures, faith or the faith is a kingdom that comes in power. It's a kingdom that comes to baptize every person who professes faith in Jesus Christ, to baptize them in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we are to contend for this faith that has been trusted to us. What we're saying is, 100 years from Christ, 500 years from Christ, 1,000 years, 2,000 years from Christ, we are to entrust this message, this gospel, this power, so it doesn't fade. It doesn't change. That we represent to our culture the very same Jesus as the culture 2,000 years ago. The very same promise and gospel that he left with us. We proclaim the same message that Jesus did with the same signs, the same miracles, the same gifts of the Holy Spirit. The faith we are fighting for is a way of life that is to be lived out of a profound, life-changing love. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, what did he say more than anything? I pray they would love one another like I love them. Why? That the world would know that I am here, that I am real. This is not just a, another religion. This is actually a demonstration of God's presence that will melt the heart, radically change the heart of any person who truly knows me. 
That's the gospel I'm entrusting to them, to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. What does that mean? It means to never allow the message to get watered down. To never let it get watered down by changing the truth. Hear me, friends. To never allow the gospel message to be watered down by explaining away God's promises. Or explaining away God's power. If it's not happening, but it's a promise, and the need is still there, what do we say? We don't say, oh, Rabbi, nice thought. We say, Jesus, you are Lord. As we sang, you reign. And if you're not reigning right now, Lord, then we submit ourselves to you afresh. Whatever you've got to take from our lives, whatever you've got to strip off of, that you may truly be Lord, not just of our lives, but Lord, the, the two square feet of kingdom that we operate in everywhere we go. We want you to reign. We want to cherish this gospel that's been commissioned to us, entrusted to us. So what does it mean to contend for the faith in our own life? Let me give you two brief points. I believe very simply, if you boil it down, it means right belief and right behavior. Right belief and right behavior. Now, right belief, I believe, begins with putting the time and the effort into knowing God. It just starts there. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for somebody else's experience or somebody else's testimony. Right belief means I want to know God. I want a living faith. I want to know him through the Spirit and through his word, the Bible. You see, the problem for a lot of us is not even so much in the reading. I mean, I know there's a scarcity of God's word, and we're going to be addressing that in the weeks to come. But a lot of times it's not just in the reading, but it's actually in the believing. That's what Paul said in Romans 15. He said, may the God of hope fill you with what? The very thing you need, the very thing your culture needs. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. That's your strength. With all peace in what? Believing. And he goes on to say that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's by this Holy Spirit at work in your life. May the God of hope fill you all joy and peace in believing. Now, listen, it's really hard to change our beliefs. Anybody brave enough to admit that? It is really hard sometimes. We have a term we use in our culture nowadays. It's called confirmation bias. And friends, all of us have it. Confirmation bias simply means that we undervalue information that contradicts our beliefs. We undervalue information or truth that might in some way dislodge us from our comfort, make us maybe have to grow or stretch a little bit. Confirmation bias also is something where we overvalue information that confirms our belief. We overvalue the opinions of people who make us feel good or just agree with us all the time. And on top of that, we're all hardwired to feel good about not changing our beliefs. I mean, some people actually feel more spiritual because they've never changed their belief in 50 years. I don't know if that's a living faith. Now, you can go back to some of my sermons 20, 30 years ago, and I probably said some things then that I wouldn't say today. It wasn't because I was intentionally trying to say anything wrong, but if I grow... In experience, if I grow in revelation, understanding what's going to happen, it's going to bring a greater dimension to that truth that I thought I knew. So it's not a contradiction. It's just evidence that I am actually grown or have a heart that wants to grow. Now, we need to keep that in mind because the reality is most of us are wrong a lot of the time. Tell the person beside you, you're wrong most of the time. Yeah, like some of you really wanted to have an opportunity to say that, right? Go ahead, say it a couple times. Get it off your chest. Like, you know, come to think of it, I don't believe you half the time. I just didn't have the nerve to say it. 
Okay, but that's true. A lot of us are wrong a lot of the time. Or a lot of us, even if we don't intentionally say the wrong thing, the reality is a lot, in a lot of matters, we only have a partial revelation. We have an opinion. We have a partial understanding depending on who we're listening to. And these wrong beliefs oftentimes are an integral part of our identity. And you say, oh, no, no, I don't mind if someone disagrees. Really? The way you can tell they're part of your identity is let someone have a different opinion. Let someone disagree with you. And what usually happens? You unfriend them. Right? You post something. Somebody posts another opinion. Oop, not a friend anymore. I don't want your opinion. Makes me feel uncomfortable, right? Makes me think. Makes me have to grow, perhaps. Whatever the reason may be. But the reality is success and growth depends on our readiness to change our mind when we're exposed to the truth. We know the scripture well, Romans 12. Paul said, do not be shaped by this world. Instead, let God transform you into a new religious person by changing the way you think. Is that what he says? No. He's saying, let God change you into a brand new person. Let God turn you into someone who, whom Jesus has conquered. Someone whose heart has been melted by his truth, his revelation, his love, whatever it is he wants to grow you into. For example, as you spend time with the Lord in his word, as you spend time in, in quiet and meditation and in listening prayer, whatever the discipline may be, you'll discover the word of God will wash over you. You'll discover the Holy Spirit brings some things to your mind where you're saying, hey, you're doing pretty well, but you could grow a little bit. Remember this area you've been trying to get your attention in? Let's deal with this now, whatever it may be. But the Lord will begin to introduce new truth, new thoughts into your mind, new dimensions of that in order for you to grow and to become more full. That's why, for example, we, we've announced some of those ministries this morning. We don't run programs here. At least we try not to. Our intention is not just to give you a binder, give you information, and, and, and you know, learn some new things. Our intention is to impart life, is to release something of the Spirit, something of, of, of dynamics, something that's going to expand you, something that's going to equip you better to minister what you profess to have in Christ. That's why, for example, you can attend something like the Alpha Seminar or the Cleansing Stream Seminar. Alpha starts tomorrow night. Cleansing Stream starts September 20th, Wednesday. You can still enroll if you like. Or you enroll your children in King's Castle. Because as you expose yourself to these things, again, they're not just programs. They're opportunities for you to be introduced to truth you perhaps have not considered before. Or to have some things ministered to you that had not been ministered to you before, but will bring you into a greater dimension of freedom. And that freedom is not merely knowing more stuff. Or even just knowing more truth. That experience, that comes rather that freedom by experiencing what it is you claim to know to be true. I've said it many times before, but we can say something like the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is like a, like a fountain of living water, right? And that's so true. Isn't it a beautiful picture? But the Lord's intention for all of us is not just to know that he's a fountain or a river of living water. The intention of the Lord is for you to leave here wet. That's what he wants. He wants you to leave his presence drenched. He wants you to know what it is to be refreshed, to be cleansed. We talk about the word of God being a two-edged sword. That's wonderful. What a beautiful picture. But you know what? It's more about just that picture. It's really about us saying, Lord, I open my heart to your word. Just bring that sword into my life. Cut away the dross. Cut away the heaviness. Lord, expose whatever that's dark or diseased. Lord, I just want freedom. Whatever it is, whatever image the Lord gives us, he wants it to become a reality that we experience, to experience what we know to be true. My question is, are you experiencing what you believe to be true? And finally this morning, it's one thing to have right beliefs as we contend for our faith, but it also means to have right behavior. Will you read 2 Corinthians 5 with me? 
Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has become. That's what Paul said in Romans 12, right? It's about being a new person. I think one of the most amazing things, one of the most amazing miracles God works in our life is again, he doesn't just impart information. He didn't come just to, to introduce it to a new religion. He actually comes to live within us. If you can imagine, I see it this way, is the Lord just kind of taking a piece of himself and he plants his life in us. And that life that is now in us, he grows. He grows so the beauty of that life can be seen in my life as I live my life. It's not just in what I say or what I profess, but it's how I live my life. I was sharing with the first congregation there that when I was in Bible college, I preached in the chapel one, one, uh, one service, chapel service, and a professor came up after, and he said, Paul, I, I had this message I've had for years, and he was in his 80s by then. He said, I've had this for years. I want to pass it on to you. We really tied into what you shared this morning. And the poem is simply this. He says, we are writing the gospel a chapter each day by the things that we do and the words that we say. People read what we write, whether it's faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to you? What is the gospel they see according to you? Is it a living faith? Is it a life-changing faith? Do they see somebody who professes certain things, believes, professes to believe certain things, or tries to live a certain lifestyle, but when push comes to shove, they kind of respond like anyone who doesn't know the Lord? Or when push comes to shove, they make decisions that are clearly contrary to God's Word? Or do they see somebody that rain or shine, whatever the situation, whatever the challenge, they see someone whose heart has been conquered by Jesus? And whether it's through tears or through a smile, they see somebody who, who, through whom Jesus is living. They see this beauty coming through that person's life. I don't know if you've ever seen the talent show, America's Got Talent, or The Voice, right? How many watch that? Yeah, you shouldn't, okay? Uh, just kidding, just kidding. Just setting you up. But one of the interesting things about that program is you have these amazing vocalists, all walks of life, ages, and they sing these beautiful songs. They sing them so well. And of course, the judges, most of them are singers themselves. But what I find interesting quite often, interesting, is that the people who advance through the competition are not the people who can sing the song just like the one who made it famous. You know, some girl sounded like Whitney Houston or some guy like some other famous singers. The one who actually makes it through, and the judges will often point this out, is the one who sings the song, maybe a song made famous by somebody else, but they have made that song their own. They have embodied that song. They've interpreted that song through their voice, through their life experience, through their understanding. Those people have taken a song and they've made it a beautiful thing. And again, they continue to advance through those competitions. And I believe that is what Jesus intends for you and me, is that he shares truth with us, but he wants us to experience that truth. And then he grows that, and he shows it through your life as a thing of beauty. What did Paul say to the Ephesians in chapter 2? He said, we are God's masterpiece. I like what another translation says. He made us to do beautiful things, which he planned in advance for us to live our lives doing. Do you realize that? That walking with Jesus, we know this. We know it's not just about coming to church. And we come to church because we're sincere. We love the Lord. We want to be in his presence. We want to be edified and built up and encouraged. And those are all good things. 
But what the Lord desires for you and me is a relationship where he's not just a good teacher, where there's not just some really wonderful truths that I may or may not apply to my life. What he's looking for is servants of Jesus Christ, people whose hearts have been conquered by Jesus. Why? So as the scripture says, we actually are able to walk with the Lord and do the things he has planned for us, that he has planned for us, get this, to live our lives doing. It's not the occasional thing. It's every day. Every day there should be a sense in our heart, I'm living out God's plan for me. I'm living out what God's called me to this month, what he's speaking to my heart about. I'm living out, I'm seeing his plan, his dream that he shared in my heart. I'm seeing it unfold more and more. I'm growing. And these aren't just things he expects of us. The beautiful thing is, these are all things that he actually plants in us. Read this last scripture before we close. Philippians 2. God is working in you to help you to want to do and be able to do what pleases him. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, hear me this morning. If your understanding of God is that God has this list of things he expects you to do or you're in trouble, you don't know my God. That's not who Jesus is. You know what he does? First of all, he frees us by washing away our sin and cutting it away. He frees us from everything that would hold us back from running that race with joy and success. And then he plants into my heart the dreams that he has for me. And then he says, I'm going to give you the ability not only to want what I want for you, but to actually live every day what I want for you. And even in the midst of the struggles, you might even be blindsided sometimes. What does the Lord say? Don't worry. Don't worry. Everything works together for the good to those who know me, those who are living according to my purpose. What does that mean? Even in the struggle, he says, I'm using that for what I'm shaping in you, what I'm growing in you in your journey, what I'm going to build in you. It's all part. If you will, as we sang earlier, in any situation, if you will learn to praise me. And sometimes we praise through tears. Sometimes we praise not understanding how this makes sense. But what are we doing? We are praising the Father, saying, Father, you are still good. I may not understand, but I know you do. And Lord, I thank you. As, as, as Jude said, I thank you that you are holding on to me. You're holding on to me. I can remember when we'd take the boys swimming. You know, if you had little children, you'd take them swimming, right? And you splash in the water, you throw them around or whatever. But I can remember when the boys were really small and they couldn't swim. What would they do? They would just clutch onto me, right? Clutch onto me. But was it their clutching onto me that kept them safe? No. It was me holding them that kept them safe. They've only got so much strength, but no one was going to take them out of my hands in that swimming pool. They were going to stay safe. And friends, we need to understand that as much as we hold on to Jesus and we hold on to him by turning to him, but no matter how much you are holding on, the real secret is that he loves you and he keeps you and he is holding on to you. That's the day we're living in today. But the Lord wants us to be a people of right belief and of right behavior. Jude says we need to contend, agonize for the faith, agonize for a faith that comes in power and purity with gifts and miracles that is never watered down, that is never explained away. He says that kind of faith, contend for that because that's what will change you. That's what will change things around you. Pastor Spencer mentioned this morning as the worship team returns to close us off this morning, 
He mentioned that we have a special night planned Saturday. And many of you will be new since, uh, over this past year, so maybe this is something you've been exposed to. But if you're interested this, this morning, even just, you may, be, you may be a mature believer and say, I just need a little kickstart. You know, or back into the fall, back in the routines, or some of the stuff you're sharing this morning, Pastor. You know, I, I want to move in that kingdom that comes in power, that comes in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that comes in signs and wonders. I want that living faith. Well, Saturday night, we're setting it aside for that reason. It's called Encounter Night with Holy Spirit and healing. Paul Rapley's with us. Paul travels around the world. Just came back from Brazil a while ago. It's just seen some next level amazing things God is doing around the world. But you know what? God has the same plan for our church. We need the same gospel. You see, we can look at what God's doing sometimes. Oh man, that was the first century church. And a lot of times it was. But the Lord wants the same thing for us. Because he says, I have entrusted to you the gospel. It's not only in words. I've entrusted to you the kingdom. I've entrusted to you this, this, this good news. And I don't ever want it to change down through the ages. And how many of us would be honest enough this morning to say, you know, I could probably tweak a few areas of my life. There's probably a couple areas of my faith where I, I could use a boost. I could use being exposed to something different, something the Lord will challenge me and bring me in, grow me in. Because I want that living faith, no matter what our age may be. And I invite you to join us Saturday night at 7 o'clock for an encounter with Holy Spirit and healing. And, and, and if you know someone who needs healing, come. If you need healing, come. God's going to do stuff. We know that already. We're expecting that. Uh, if you know an atheist friend doesn't believe this stuff, a skeptical Christian friend, bring them. Bring them. Say, well, hey, come on. Check it out. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. Let's see. Come on. Let's see what God does.